Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming tonight to the Central Library. On behalf of our CEO, Carla Hayden, I'm Roz Valencina, Communications Director of the Pratt Library. We're so, we appreciate that you're all here tonight. We know um, he's on a tight schedule and you're eager to hear from him. I just want to let everyone know on your way out to grab a compass. It will tell you all the fun events that come to the Pratt Library, not only here at the Central Library, but to all the branches. And I know you're all on it, so follow us on Twitter and follow us on Facebook, and you'll find out more about the other events that come here to the library. Now, to moderate uh, and, and interview our special guest tonight is our, our great partners from 92Q, 92Q, and I would like to welcome AJ. What's going on, everybody? How you everybody feeling? My name is AJ from Rabbitack 92Q. How many of y'all listen to Rabbitack? All right, good, good, good. So we're going to make this a situation like a family for real. It's great pleasure and honor that I bring this hip-hop artist that you all know with the classics like Quiet Storm, so many more. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for my man Prodigy, y'all. What's going on? <laughs> First and foremost, man, Pete, welcome to Baltimore, man. Welcome back. Thank you. And welcome home as well. Thank you, thank you. So let's get right to it. Let's talk about this book. What was one of your main reasons to put out this book? Uh, one of the main reasons was uh, just to, you know, clarify any misconceptions of Mob Deep, any rumors that people might have been going around saying, you know, false stuff. Because a lot of people say a lot of things, so it's better to just get the real from somebody. And I think our, our supporters and our fans, they deserve the real background story to really know what's going on. Now, when you first got home, what was one of the first things that you did, man? Man, the first thing I did was... Uh, Hit the studio. Yeah, you know, just get that work done because, you know, I've been gone for three years without studio. I never did that in my life. Like, only the, the longest I spent out the studio was probably maybe a couple of weeks, you know what I mean, and, or, or maybe a month. And, uh, yeah, I needed that to get that out of my system because I wrote so many songs while I was in, you know. One of the um, songs that you did, you did with Nas. Um, like I said, you guys have recently patched things up, got things straight. Tell us a little bit about that situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole, before I went to prison, before I went to jail, um, you know, I had a plan to, to go in there and really get my head together, you know, get my mind, body, and soul together, and really to come out a better man, you know what I mean, than, I, than when I went in. Um, you know, to really put my anger in check, to really put certain uh, negative traits that I had in check, and really you know, live how I'm supposed to live and really get the success that I want out of life. And um, so when I came home, I was like, you know what? I need to do certain things. Like, And the, and the one thing, I, the main thing I wanted to do was squash that with Nas so we could continue to do our music together. Because, you know, the music, every time we do some songs together, it's like real powerful all the time and it just comes out incredible. So I wanted to get that out the way so we can continue to do those songs for the people out there, you know what I mean? Now, let's get back into a little bit of the history about Prodigy. You come from a nice family, man, as far as with your mother, your grandfather, as well as, you know, many other people in your situation. Tell us a little bit about that in terms of your musical influence. Yeah, I mean, starting with my grandfather, he was a, you know, world-famous jazz musician by the name of Bud Johnson. He's, uh, he's in, like, the Jazz Hall of Fame, the Big Band Hall of Fame. And uh, he played with a lot of people like Dizzy Gillespie and, um, you know, Gary Bartz, Frank Foster, um, Quincy Jones, he was in the band with Quincy. He actually helped teach Quincy how to write sheet music, you know what I mean? And um, so 
I've been to a lot of his shows when I was a little kid, like, and I remember being in the bars in Manhattan, the old jazz clubs and all that. And, and uh, you know, I wasn't even supposed to be in there, you know what I mean? And, you know, just watching him play on stage and seeing how that whole process of, of a live performance works. Um, and then, you know, my grandmother, uh name's Bernice Johnson, and she, she was, like, uh, real famous for uh, dancing. She had a dance school. And um, she was one of the first Cotton Club dancers in Harlem. Her and her best friend was Lena Horn coming up. And um, she started her own dance business in her basement in Jamaica, Queens, in Southside. And uh, it grew so big. It started with, like, just a few students, and it grew so big that she, she became one of the first black women to own her own building in Jamaica, Queens. And um, her business was just thriving for many years. So she used to throw big concerts at like Lincoln Center and, and big venues like that all over the place and do certain things for the community and all that. So I seen a lot of that growing up. I was around all of that, you know what I mean? I, she, had me, she had me in the dance school and all that, you know, doing all that. So, um, and then my mother, you know, she was uh, in this group called The Crystals. It's, uh, it's like a doo-wop pop type of group or rock and roll, old school rock. Um, and they had a lot of hits like the Do Run Run and Rock and Robin and all that type of stuff. And um, yeah, man. So you know, the music and and, and um, show business was like a big part of my upbringing. Just seeing all that and being a part of all that, you know. So you had a couple of situations where um, your grandmother went through an accident, and as well as also a couple of superstars owe you thanks because if it wasn't for you. You know, they might be in some Pepsi commercials, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, um, back in the days, my grandmother, she had gotten to a, uh, she was walking across the street, and, and she got hit by a car, and she, she was paralyzed for a little while. And, um, you know, she pulled through it because she's like a real old-school Southern woman and with strong will, you know what I mean? And she's like, uh, doctors don't know what the hell they talking about. I'm walking again, you know what I mean? And so she And she did it, and... Um, you know, that was, that was ill to see her do that, too. She taught me a lot with that, you know, just her will to want to do something and just to see her, how she ran her business with the dance school and, and how she was real independent and she, and she controlled her business, you know what I mean? She had a lot of people working for her, and uh, they, they called her the head nigga in charge. She had a mug that said H-N-I-C on it, you know what I mean? That's where I got the name from, you know what I mean? So, um... Yeah, man, it was just real crazy to, to, uh, to grow up and see her do that, and I learned a lot from her doing that, you know. And, and yeah, you know, they, she had me when I was a little kid. I was tap dancing, ballet dancing, doing all of that stuff in, in, in the school, you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, uh, it was one time I had, I had uh, there was tryouts going for this thing called the Tap Dance Kid. It was this new play on Broadway. So, uh she had, I didn't even have to try out for it because my grandmother had a lot of pull in that world. So uh, she had made some phone calls, and they wanted me to be, and, I, and my grandmother told me, they, they want you to play the part. I was like, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just didn't really want to do that. Like, that wasn't something that I wanted, a career path that I wanted to do. And I was, like, probably about eight years old, nine, something like that when that happened. And um, I turned that down, you know what I mean? And they, they picked up that dude, Alfonso Rivera, after that, you know what I mean? So, yeah, that's what you was talking about. Yeah. And you also had a chance to, like I said, be associated with Diana Ross as well, Ben Vereen, you know, through your grandmother as well. Yeah. Um, let's also touch on your childhood as far as your health with the sickle cell anemia. For those who don't know, 
even though all the fans out there that know about it, please explain a little bit about what it is and, you know, how it still affects you to this day. Yeah, well, you know, sickle cell anemia is a hereditary disease that's passed down through your parents, you know what I mean? And um, it, affects, it affects about uh, 100,000 uh, blacks and I think some Latinos in, in America, and there's, like, millions more, like, overseas. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a very painful disease, you know what I mean? Like, when I, when I have little episodes or crisis, as they call them, you know, I go through a lot of pain, and it's like serious pain. Where when I was a little kid growing up with that, um, I didn't understand why I had to go through that. I used to be mad at God and like really trying to figure out why I was having to go through this, you know. And um, it really caused me to have, uh, you know, just doubts in my mind about spirituality and and the belief in God and that whole thing. And, and it made me like a real angry person growing up, you know. And um, there was a time I wanted to uh, commit suicide, you know what I mean? Because I was tired of going through all that pain I was going through. I wanted to be, you know, just regular like everybody else. And I was tired of feeling that pain. And I, I actually wanted to commit suicide, you know what I mean? But um, I never, obviously I never went through it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just it's serious, man. It's a lot of pain. And, you know, it took me to, like, probably my mid-20s for me to realize that, you know, God, God wasn't punishing me or, 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 or it's not that God doesn't exist. It's that, um, you know, some, some things happen in life to teach you a lesson, you know what I mean? And I, I believe that, that my pain and everything that I was, you know, going through was just a lesson for me to teach me how to take care of my health and, and for me to learn about diet and certain things. Like if, if it wasn't for my sickle cell, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, be interested in certain things, you know what I mean? I wouldn't be interested in, in studying a lot about the origins of things and the history of things and diet and lifestyle and spirituality. You know, I think the sickle cell pushed me to want to learn about that kind of stuff, you know what I mean? So it was a blessing that came along with it, you know what I mean? All right, so let's talk about your love with music, you know what I'm saying, as far as some of the songs that you was hearing with MC Shan and everything. Let's talk about that. Yeah, um, well, my, when I was... Uh, Around that age, around eight, you know, to like ten years old, something like that. My mother worked for the housing authority for for a while, and uh, she used to get people their apartments in the projects. So um, she had worked in Queensbridge at this time, and um, you know, I was real young, and she used to put me in a day camp that was right on the hill in Queensbridge, it was right across the street from her office. So you know, um, that experience out there just introduced me to like a whole new world and a lot of style and, and and that's when rap music started becoming real popular you know what I mean for me and um around that time for everybody and um I used to see like the older kids outside and on the block and they would be saying you know they little raps and the cypher and all that and this is when everybody's wearing shell toe Adidas and you know Kangos and all that type of stuff gazelles and all that so you know it was just real interesting to me to see that whole that whole culture and that lifestyle, you know, because I was a little kid looking up to these older dudes. They was probably in eight, 17, 18 years old. And seeing, I was just like, damn, I, I want to I dress like that. I want to be like that, you know what I mean? So that's when I really, uh, the interest of wanting to be like a rapper really sparked into me, you know, just uh, seeing how the old school did it, you know what I mean? Uh, so when most rappers rap about like how fly they are, what I got, the cars, the girls, and all that, the first rap you wrote, 
Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that, man. Yeah, I ain't heard I ain't heard this dude in the projects rapping about crackheads. Like this is when like crack had first like first came out. So uh he was going around he had this song about crackhead that he always used to say about all the crackheads in the in the projects. So <laughs> so I made my version of it like biting his style a little bit and I used to say it to my mom's like and she used to be like, Oh that's nice right there. You good <laughs> You know what I mean? And I used to say, like, uh, I used to say Rakim rhymes to my moms and act like I wrote it. She'd be like, oh, that's real good. You, you're good. I think we all done that. <laughs> Whoa. All right, so let's talk about Habit. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Your other half. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. How did it feel? When did you guys first meet? Let's talk about that history. Uh, me and Hab first met in high school. We went to high school together. Um, we went to high school in the city in Manhattan. It's called the High School Art and Design. Um, we met like in the middle of the first year when I got there, uh, this dude in my photography class, that was his homeboy. And I told him that I rap and all that. He was like, yo, you need to meet my man. Have he nice. And y'all about the same height. Cause we was like real short back then. You know what I mean? He was like, y'all about the same height. Y'all would look ill if y'all start a group together and all that. Right. <laughs> so well, hold up. I got you this question though. Right. right. You and Havoc, like I said, was short. And then your DJ was what? Yeah, he was about like 6'2 or something like that, you know what I mean? <laughs> it just didn't look right, you know what I mean? But anyway, you know, he, he introduced me to Hav, and we got real cool, and we, we found out we had a couple of things in common, you know what I mean, the rap music, and, uh, you know, both our grandmothers lived in Ravenswood Projects down the block from Queensbridge. So, um, you know, that was just kind of a little coincidence. And we started hanging out each, with each other every day, and, you know, uh, while in the school, we used to have a little like, uh, uh, like this crew, and we used to rob people in the school and wild out and just have, just going crazy, all the dumb stuff you do when you're young. And you know, I started hanging out in Queensbridge with him. He started coming around my way to Left Rack and to, uh, you know, Hempstead, Long Island, where I was staying at some time. And um, you know, we just clicked real fast. So you know, that was the beginning of it all right there. Hey. When it comes to people that's down for each other especially in this artist game, a lot of times when one person makes it, they're real quick to leave the other person off. Right. You had an opportunity with Jive Records, and you was on the Boys in the Hood uh, soundtrack, right? And Havoc was trying to get down with that situation, but they didn't want the both of you, so you left the whole deal on the table. Yeah, actually, um, it was that summer, I was uh, shopping around a demo. My, mo- my mother was managing me, because, you know, she... She knew a lot about the music industry, so she was like, let me be your manager. I'm going to make sure there ain't nobody jerking you around. So I said, all right, cool. So, you know, we started shopping around to try to get a deal for myself as a solo artist. I had a corny-ass name and all that. My name was Lord T, the Golden Child. From the Golden Child. I I want the knife. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that was around the time the movie came out, you know what I mean? So, so, um, you know, I was shopping around my my little demo and all that, so... We had a connection over at Jive, and, um, you know, they, they was like, all right, you all right, you sound all right, we'll, we'll give you a, a demo deal. That's what, what they call a demo deal. Like, they'll, they'll pay for your studio time so you can make some more songs, and if they like the songs that you make, they'll sign you to a real deal, you know what I mean? So that's what I had going on. And uh, during that time when I had the demo deal, I used to go up there and make songs every day and all that, and... Um, I used to flirt with the ladies that worked there, you know what I mean? And, and one of them hooked me up with a soundtrack that, that was coming through Jive Records, and that was for Boys in the Hood, the movie. And um, I, I did a song 
I did a 16 bars with this group called High Five from back in the days. I did a 16 bars on a on a song. It was called the song was called Too Young, and we did that, and it got on the movie. So that was like I was open, like yo, I'm on the movie soundtrack, you know what I mean? And they wanted to sign me after that. So like psh, maybe you know that September, you know. Uh, that's when I went to the school, and then later on I met Hav, you know what I mean? And then, um, you know, when we decided that we were going to start a group together, I told him, I said, yo, I got this deal over at Job. They're going to sign me right now. Going, going. He's like, well, I said, yo, I'm going to bring you over there. Maybe they'll sign us as a group. So I took them over there, and, like, they weren't interested at all in doing that. They just wanted, you know, Lord T, the golden child. You know what I mean? So, right. Not so, seeing the bigger picture. Yeah, so... Uh, I basically just turned them down. I was like, you know what? You don't want both of us? I'm out of here. You know what I mean? I left. I walked away from them. All right, so you walked away, then you walked over to the powerhouses of Def Jam. Yeah. But Def Jam didn't go as smooth as you thought it was going to be, huh, bro? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, um, after, after I walked away from the job situation, um, me and Hash started doing a lot of demo songs together, and we started shopping around for a deal for us. And uh, we called ourselves the Poetical Prophets. You know what I mean? That was our first name. You know what I mean? And um, we started shopping around and all that. So one of the, the most popular label at that time was Def Jam. You know what I mean? That was like the only label, really, that was doing it real. So, you know, we used to look on the back of the albums and get the address to the label. And we used to just cut out of school, take the train over there, and just stand outside. You know what I mean? With our, with our little Walkman on and wait for the artist to walk out the front door. So we seen a bunch of artists coming out. We used to be like, yo, listen to our little song, whatever. They're like, get out of here, shorty. I ain't got no time for that. You know what I mean? So um, there was one person that stopped for us was this dude, you know, Q-Tip from Trial Cold Quest. And he stopped for us, and he listened to our music. And he was like, yo, y'all like y'all. I'm going to bring y'all inside the office and introduce y'all to some people. So he brought us in, and he, set up a, he helped set up a meeting with us with Russell Simmons. So, uh, so Russell could hear our music and see if he wanted to sign us. And... Uh, you know, the day of the meeting, uh, yeah, something crazy happened. You know, we played, we played our music for, uh, actually, we played it for Leo Cohen because Russell wasn't available to take the meeting. And, uh, you know, Leo was like, ah, oh, you guys cursed too much because we were real young. We were like 16 years old, and there wasn't, there wasn't no young uh, rappers that was talking like how we was talking with that subject matter and all that stuff. So he was like, nah, I can't do nothing with y'all. Y'all too young. Y'all talk, y'all too graphic. Uh, we're going to catch a lawsuit if we put your album out. That's what he told us. So we like, what? So we like, all right, you know what? Forget it. It's your loss. You know but a mean? month later, he came out with the group who? Yeah. Onyx. Yeah, yeah, he came out with Onyx. Well, sign Onyx, waving text, ballheads. Y'all know the whole story with slamming Onyx and whatnot, but wouldn't sign these cats. Yeah, but, you know, uh, then again, when I think about it, you know, Onyx was a little older than us, you know what I mean? They were like maybe about five, four or five years older than us. So I guess... They looked at it like they can get away with it more. We was like just, and plus, we were 16, but we looked like we were 12, you know what I'm saying? Because we were mad little and short, you know what I mean? So, um, so it was like, that didn't work out. So, you know, when, when, uh, when, uh, when Leo said that, all right, we can't do nothing with y'all, y'all curse too much and all that, y'all too, y'all, y'all too violent and all that, we was like, all right, cool, it's your loss, you know what I mean? Because we knew we had something, you know what I mean? We was like, yo, we got something here, you know what I mean? So, we was like, we wasn't even stressing it, really. So we left the office um, upstairs, and we went downstairs in the Def Jam. And, um, you know, I used to, back in the days, like, it was real wild, like, growing up 
at that school in Manhattan, and, and it was a lot of, it was this gang called the Decepticons from Brooklyn, and it was this other gang called the Low Lives, and, um, you know, they would always come up to the school and cut people with razors and, and just wild out on people. So I had bought a gun, you know what I mean, a little one-shot Derringer. I bought it right in the lunchroom in the school. And, um, you know, because I wasn't letting nobody you know, cut me, you know what I'm right saying? Because I used to see people come with buck 50s on their faces in, in the morning. I'd be like, damn, something happened. Like, the Decepticons jumped me in the train station. And they said they're going to come up here and jump everybody tomorrow after school. Like, all right, I got something for that, you know what I mean? So whatever, I bought a little gun to protect myself. And, um, you know, I had the gun in the office that day, and I didn't want to, uh, you know, like I felt, because the, meet, the meeting was supposed to be in Russell Simmons' crib, but he canceled and gave us to Lior. So I didn't want to bring a gun in Russell's house, so I left the gun in the drawer in my man's office downstairs in Def Jam. So when the meeting got canceled, we walked back to the office, met with Lior. Lior said, nah, I'm not feeling that. So we like, all right, we went downstairs. I went to go get my gun. I was like, yo, let me get my gun out the drawer. Got my gun. And uh, matter of fact, Hav took it. And then, uh, you know, something happened, and he shot somebody by accident, really. You know what I'm saying? In the office, in Def Jam. And that was kind of crazy. But, uh, yeah, I explained it more in the book. You know what I mean? <laughs> but now the, everything ended up all right with the, with the guy from Def Jam, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, you know, everything worked out with him. Because he understood what happened, you know what I mean? <laughs> nah. All right, so let's fast forward. So when did things start clicking for Mob Deep as a group? Um, it started clicking for us after we put out our first album, Juvenile Hell. You know, it wasn't a big commercial success at all. It wasn't even a little commercial success. It was just, they, you know, it sold about 12,000 copies. Um, we had a song called Hit It From The Back, and we had a song called Peer Pressure. And it was like, the album was like trash really you know what I mean when I listen to it now it, it's, it's pretty good it got some good songs on it but it's not it wasn't on that level that we were trying to take it to and um, at the time when I think about it you know we were real young we didn't care about making an album that have that could stand the test of time and have longevity we just wanted gold teeth you know what I mean and a, a car and we want a video on TV to say yeah we famous you know what I mean like right. that's the only thing that was on our minds at that time we was just young and dumb basically so when the album flopped and um and and they dropped us we got dropped by, by the label that really like broke our heart you know what I mean cuz this is what we wanted to do with our life and we like damn it really it was a reality check you know and it, it was around that time right before we got dropped Nas had dropped um, Illmatic, you know, and we was around Nas all the time. We all in the hood together. And when he dropped Illmatic, you know, compared to the Juvenile Hell album, we was like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Paul stop everything. What the hell? What studio he working in? Where he come from with these rhymes? Like, you know what I'm saying? So it was just like, it was an incredible album compared to our little feeble attempt at rap music. You know what I mean? So it made us want to go back to the lab and just really try harder this time and really uh, try to make something that can stand the test of time and really um, concentrate on the lyrics, concentrate on the production, and really, really make something that's official that the people are going to love, you know what I mean? And that's when we started working on songs like Shook Ones and, and Survival with the Fittest and all that stuff, you know what I mean? One of my favorite tracks from you is Up North Trip. yeah. You know what I'm saying? That tells a lot of stories and right back at you. Of course, Quiet Storm remix. 
Let's talk about the Quiet Storm remix and Little Kim because that is still an anthem to this day that we'll play in the clubs, in the parks, and everybody will jam off like it's the first time that they heard it. Yeah, the Quiet Storm is like a song that almost didn't happen. You know what I mean? Um, Had was in the studio with Noid late one night, and um, I came to the studio late. And when I arrived at the studio, they had that beat playing. Had was working on that beat. So, like, maybe like five, ten minutes later after I got there, they was going to do something, like uh, go to a club or meet some girls or do something, right? And I was like, y'all didn't even do nothing to this beat. Like, what y'all doing with this beat? They're like, oh, we be right back. They're not even thinking about the beat. So I'm like, oh, what? I'm like, all right, go ahead, bounce. You know, and while they was gone, I made that whole song real quick because I ain't want, I, I made it before they came back on purpose because I ain't want nobody else hopping on it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I did that, and, um, you know, when they, when, when they heard it at first, it was like, oh, this is kind of crazy right here. And, um, you know, I had gave it to DJ Clue first. That was the first person I gave that song to. And Clue put it on his mixtapes and all that, and he would play it. And um, Clue was DJing at this big club in Manhattan called The Tunnel. And uh, I was in The Tunnel. We used to go there, like, every Sunday. It was, like, like the most famous club in, in, in Manhattan as far as, like, hip-hop. And, um, you know, every Sunday we were going there. So we in there one Sunday, and I hear Clue playing it in the club. I'm like, damn, that's, like, he playing the song in the club like it's a real single or something. And people was, like, dancing to it and feeling it. I was like, wow, this is crazy. And then every Sunday he would play it, play it. And that's how that song, like, it grew from, from Clues mixtapes to the club. And then they started playing it on radio, you know what I mean? So uh, it was just, it was incredible to see that song grow. But it was just, uh, my, the version was just me on it, though. So then when the song got so, like, so big and it was doing so good, uh, we decided to put it on a Mom Deep album and turn it into a Mom Deep song. Uh, and grab little Kim, put her on it, put Haverse on it, and that's how that came about the uh, remix. Yeah. Okay. Now there was also other greats in that hip hop era: Notorious B.I.G., Wu Tang, Capone, and Noriega. At that time, did you feel like there was, and as well as Jay Z, did you feel like there was competition amongst you guys, or did you feel like you was on your own lane and they couldn't touch you at the time? To tell you the truth, the only people, the only person, I was like nervous about was Nas. Like, Nas was, was that nice to me at that time when he was just like, you know, I was always be like, damn, son, he gonna come out with a song, he's gonna crush our song, you know what I mean? So he was the only one I had that real feeling about. But at, to tell you the truth, at that time, like, I was young, um, young-minded, real cocky, arrogant, you know what I mean? Um, uh, I was feeling myself, you know what I'm saying? Especially after the success of Infamous. Now, I always was like a humble type of dude, but when it came to like rap music and other rappers, like I was feeling myself. Like I was like, nah, you're corny dogs, you know what I'm saying? You ain't fucking with us, like, you know what I'm saying? So that's, that's how I was looking at it. And, um, you know, that's just some young-minded stuff right there, you know what I mean? But... Yeah, that's, that's how I used to look at other rappers, you know what I mean? As far as, like, you saying, like, Biggie, Jay-Z, and, and everybody else, I wasn't Nas. The only person I felt like that about was Nas. Or... When it comes to the movie Scarface, I know that's one of my favorites, and I know from the hip-hop crew, it's one of yours. You guys brought the Scarface theme into a lot of your music, especially G.O.D. Part 3. What was it about Scarface that impacted you? Um, you know, that movie's like... 
the hood classic of all classics. Like everybody, mostly everybody in here could probably repeat that movie word for word. You know what I mean? Um, I think it was, I seen that movie probably after seeing it for the billionth time. I'm sitting there watching it one day. And I think I might have took my eyes off the screen and I was doing something and I hit a beat playing in the intro. And I'm like, damn, that, I said, damn, why nobody ever sampled that like, to rap to, you know what I mean? And I heard that, uh, you know, back in the days when I was younger, you know, Scarface from the Ghetto Boys, he had sampled, like, uh, uh, Tony Montana's words, you know what I mean? He was like, all I have in this world is my, my balls and my word. And, uh, you know, but I wasn't really thinking about that. But when I, when I thought, like, why nobody sampled this beat right here in the beginning? And, why, and there was other parts of the movie they didn't sample either. And I was just like, yo, we got to do that immediately for somebody else to do it. You know what I mean? So we went, we did it, and it, it worked. You know what I mean? It worked. People were like, we're going crazy when we did that. Because they was like, wow, I don't know why I ain't thinking that first. You know what I mean? Now, of course, the infamous East Coast, West Coast beef that was perpetuated by the media and was drummed up. At that particular time, things were serious because you was in the forefront in a sense. Did you feel like... I gotta do something, or was it first, was you, you know, like, how did you feel about it at all? Um, you know, at that time, we, we were in the crib, this is how it started, we were in the crib, uh, as a matter of fact, let me, let me bring it back a little further than that. The first, the first annual Source Awards was at Madison Square Garden in Manhattan, and, uh, you know, it was a big turnout, we all went out, you know, every, everybody in the game went out to be there and support Source Magazine because we were real cool with the owners. You know, they, the owners were real cool, Dave Mays and Ray Benzino, you know what I mean? So, you know, they invited everybody out. We went and showed love. So when we get there, uh, Death Row got a show there, and they performing. They got, like, a showcase, and they got everybody performing, and they had a big stage set on stage with jail cells and all types of stuff on stage. And they performed this song called Stranded on Death Row with Lady of Rage and Corrupt, Snoop, and a lot of people was on there. And um, so they did that. And during the show, um, something happened where Snoop just felt like the crowd wasn't showing him love. But I guess he wasn't used to that New York crowd, like, because the New Yorkers just sit there and look at you, like, you know what I'm saying, without bopping their head or nothing. That don't mean they're they not into the music, but it's just like, they watching you, they analyzing everything, you know what I'm saying? They just looking at you like, okay, you know what I'm saying? And they probably liking it in their head, but they just not physically showing it sometimes. So um, I guess he was feeling that vibe from the crowd, and he had stopped the music, and he was like, yo, hold up, hold up. New York don't got no love for Snoop Doggy Dogg and Death Row. And he started wailing on the crowd. So the crowd just started booing them, you know what I mean? Because, like, why is you flipping, dogs? Like, we here watching your show. So, uh, you know, they started booing them, and, and Snoop started flipping on the crowd. So that's, that's where it started from, right there, right? So then uh, we in the crib one day, me and my little crew or whatever, we in, the, we in the house. One of my mans cooking some eggs and bacon and all that, and we watching videos on TV. And um, this, this video come on for New York, New York, right? And we watching the video. We like, all right, new Snoop video. We like Snoop, you know what I'm saying? So we watching the video. And in the video, he kick over the Citibank building, which is the tallest building in Queens, right? He kicks the building over, and he's stomping on Manhattan buildings. And, like, 
And so we like, hold up, what does he mean by what is he what is he trying to say by that? You know what I'm saying? So we kind of took offense to that, you know what I mean? And um when we saw that, we went straight to the studio, you know what I mean? And we uh we called Stretch Armstrong, you know, and uh we called uh Tragedy and Capone Noriega, he had the group, and we was like, yo, let's do a song going back at these dudes. And we all got together, we created that song, and we did we did the video for it, you know what I mean? Did you expect the reaction that you was going to get? Uh, yeah, we, we was trying to start some trouble. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that was the whole purpose of that. You know what I'm saying? Like, to, like, to show these dudes, like, what are you doing, dogs? Like, you're not going to just become, like, you're not just going to be coming and disrespecting our buildings. Like, that was, like, disrespectful what they did. You don't do that. They know that. You know what I mean? They knew what they was doing. So, uh, you know, we made the song going right back at them. And then, uh, you know, a little while after that song came out, uh, Pop, um, it, it was around that time when that song had came out, right? maybe around the time before that, Pac had got shot in, 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 um, in the Manhattan studio, right? And, um, you know, I, I tell the story a little more in my book because I know a lot of the people that was around Pac at that time, you know, we had some friends in common and we didn't even know at that time. Um, so when Pac had got shot, in that studio, it was a robbery. They tried to just rob him, but Pop, you know, pulled out some guns and wasn't, he wasn't going to let the niggas rob him like that. And that's how he got shot because they wasn't, they, they wasn't there to shoot him. You know what I mean? So when he got shot, uh, basically, he knew who did it and why they did it. But he decided to use the Biggie Puff situation for publicity as a publicity stunt. Like, Pac was real smart. He was like a strategist, you know what I mean? So he, he used it as a publicity stunt, right? So it's like crazy how that all happened at around the same time, right? So we beefing with him, and he's beefing with Big out of nowhere. And Big is like, why is he beefing with me? Big, Big is like, you know who did that to you. It had nothing to do with us, you know what I mean? So whatever, all that stirred up at the same time. And um, basically, you know, Pac felt that he was going to ride for death row, Ride for what he's supposed to do, you know what I'm saying? He's gonna ride for Snoop because that's his team, and he made the song Hit Him Up, and all the songs going back at us after New York, New York came, I mean, after LA, LA came out. So, you know, it was a little feud started, and uh, you know, the media started calling it a coastal war and all this. It wasn't even like that, it was just a little personal thing, you know what I mean, that we had going. It wasn't no coastal beef and nothing like that, you know what I mean? Um, and it just escalated, and it got real. Uh, bad, you know what I mean, and it's sad that how it ended, you know what I mean. But um, yeah, I mean that's what it was. It, it was like serious. It was serious at that time. We were taking it serious and and, and taking it further than where it should have been taken. We, it shouldn't have went that far, you know what I mean. In terms of that situation, other than releasing the track, do you feel like it could have been handled differently? Maybe something could have been changed. Is there something that you wanted to change? That you, now that you look back over, do you just feel like, you know, let the chips fall where they met? Uh, as far as, like, the whole New York, New York, L.A., L.A. thing, um, nah, I don't think there was no change in that. There was no, there was no change in that. Like, like, that's just how we felt. We were young at that time, and, you know, we, we holding down New York. That's how we felt. Like, you're not going to disrespect our buildings, and we're not going to say nothing about it. Like, so I don't think there was no change in that. Um, I wish it didn't go as far as it went, like, you know, it started to get real serious, and like I said, 
um, me and Pac had friends in common and didn't even know it at that time. Like, he had people around him that, that was my mans, you know what I mean? And, you know, it just, it just didn't come to light until after, you know what I mean, his passing or whatever. And then I realized, like, hold up. He knows this person. He knows this person. Like, these people would have sat us down. Like, yo, y'all niggas cut that out, yo. You know what I'm saying? Y'all the same type of people, man. Y'all represent the same thing. Y'all represent poverty. Y'all represent the hood. Cut that out. You know what I'm saying? So it's sad that, you know, that couldn't, that didn't happen. You know what I mean? So when it comes to the Mob Deep albums, you also went solo, did the HNIC. What was your whole mind state at that time like? I feel like I need to get something off my chest, so I just want to do something different. How'd you feel? I mean, at that time, um, I had really made a transformation in my life right, right before the HNIC album that came out. I was, like, in my mid-20s, and um, I, had, uh, I had stopped drinking. I stopped smoking. I changed my diet, changed my whole lifestyle. I was on some real positive thinking, and, uh, you know, I was still... I looked at it like I was in, uh, you know, like God's army. Like, like how they say Jesus was a thug and Jesus ran with the thugs. Like, that's how I was looking at it. Like, and um, that's how I was approaching my life at that time. And um, basically, uh, I had cleaned up my act. And I wasn't doing a lot of the things that I used to do um, as far as drugs, alcohol, bad foods, uh, negative behavior, and all that type of stuff. I was uh, more focused on my business, more focused on, uh, you know, making mom deep, powerful in the industry, um, you know, creating other businesses for us and just doing all these things. And the reason why I was able to do that was because I, clean, I actually cleaned out my mom, body, and soul, and I made a conscious decision to do that. And, I st- and as soon as I did that, I started getting the blessings all started coming to me. Like, all the pieces started falling into place. It was a weird feeling. Like, it's like, uh, it's like as soon as I cleaned up my act, it's like God saw that. It was like, all right, well, here's your reward for doing that. You know what I mean? And I was able to write four albums at one time. I was able to do, um, I, I wrote, I wrote HNIC. I wrote uh, Murder Music, the movie. I wrote Murder Music, the album. I wrote the movie soundtrack. I did, uh, I had a group called Bars and Hooks. I had a store up in Harlem. I did all of this in, like, within one or two years. And that's because my mind was focused and clear. Like, and, um, I felt like, like, like I was a robot, like I was a machine. And I know it was the, it was the power of God and that spirituality. My spirit was, like, clean and strong. And, um, my power was coming out of me. And, um, that's how I was able to do a lot of that stuff all at once. And, um. And around that time, I had so much material, that's why I decided to put a solo album out. Because I started thinking, like, you know what? I got so much material. Why do I have to sit here and wait every two years to drop a Mom Deep album? Why can't I, instead of every two years, why can't I put a solo album in between there and get an extra check? You know what I mean? Why can't I put a, a movie out or put this out in between and get some money? You know what I'm saying? That's just more money. So I started thinking like that, and, and that's what I did. You know what I mean? Now, a couple of joints off the HNIC, going diamond, you can never feel my pain. But, of course, the classic, Keep It Thorough. It wasn't a radio-friendly record at the time. Yeah. No yeah. hook. So tell us a little bit about that, man. Yeah, I mean, that song right there was, uh, was something different. You know, um, we had started working with Alchemist 
at that time. Um, the first beat that Al did for us was was on the Murder Music album. Was on a song called uh, um, "The Realist." I think that's the name of the song with Coogee Rap. And um, and the beat was crazy, you know what I mean. And after that, uh, we just started working a lot with Al. So that was one of his like early on beats. That one of the first beats when he first started coming around us was that Keep It Thorough beat. I heard that. I was like, hold up, this is some other, you know what I'm saying? This is something else right here. So uh, when I wrote the rhyme to it, it felt like that horn break inside of the beat was the chorus. Like, it didn't need no chorus. Like, like how could you write a chorus over that part? And it's only like two bars long. So it's like a chorus really don't fit there at that break. So I was like, this is perfect. So uh, basically I just wrote that that song that way because of how the beat is structured, you know what I mean? And... um. Yeah, it just came out natural, and it came out good like that. When it comes to the Alchemist, because you guys have worked with a lot of producers, Lil John, of course, Havoc is always, you know, on deck, but Alchemist always seems to stay in the loop. So what is it about the Alchemist that you like? I mean, Al just brings, you know, a different feel and flavor to the table because his sound is California mixed with New York. You know what I mean? He, it's a weird blend. It's, it's a unique a unique blend, and it was, it's something new, like, that the game really never heard before. So, you know, we feel that, you know, we, we bringing him in only makes sense because it only makes the team that much bigger. You know what I mean? That we got other producers working with us, and that's really a part of the team. It's just not some we find some producer and then we find another producer and another. We got somebody that works with us all the time, you know what I mean? So, yeah, it, it, was, it was good to bring him in. And plus, you know, he a white kid, you know what I mean? So that was surprising to a lot of people. When they finally seen him, they was like, oh, Alchemist is white? Like, they didn't know, you know what I mean? So, you know, that's, that's a little special element to it because, you know, people don't expect that, that, that level of soul music or whatever to come out of a white person, you know what I mean? And people don't know that, yeah, white people got soul too, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's right. So now there was a situation where, of course, Alchemist was riding with you. And the boys pulled you over. Now, down here, we, don't really, we got a situation with cops, but we don't have the hip-hop police, per se. Mm-hmm. Explain to us what that means to you and in terms of how it affected your situation going, going to jail. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people had a hard time um, believing and understanding, like, what the, the whole hip-hop task force is about. Um, yeah, it, it was hard for a lot of people to believe that that was true, like the, the, the task force like that really existed. Um, but it is true, and, and um, you know, it's all been documented now. The guy that started the task force, he came out and admitted it. He wrote a book, you know, Derek Parker, um, the, the original hip-hop cop or something like that. His book is called, and, um, yeah, it all came to light, you know, around the time of my case. Like, it all it all had came to light, and... Um, you know, uh, at that time when my case had happened, um, I was running around, and I was really on the wrong path at that time, man. Like, from, from 2001 all the way up to where I caught that case, I was on, like, a downward spiral. I was going through some things in my life, like, um, you know, financially, and I had lost a lot of money. I ain't lose a lot of money, but I messed up a lot of money. I misused a lot of money at that time when I was making Murder Music, the movie. I was spending, like, my own money out of pocket, and I spent, like, $400,000 making this movie. And I went through this uh, a dispute 
with my uh, director for the movie, the guy I was working with. We had all the equipment, and we had went through a little dispute, and it really, like, messed with my head because there was a lot of money at stake that I put, put up, you know what I mean? And, you know, it really frustrated me to the point where it, it, it caused me all, like, all the negativity that I had gotten rid of and flushed out of my system all jumped back into me at once. That's how furious I was over this situation. Like, I was so mad that I wanted to smoke a cigarette again. And I ain't smoking like five years up to this point. You know what I'm saying? So it was like, at that, I, it's weird to describe, like, how this happened. You know what I mean? Um, but I, the only way I could describe it, and it makes sense, is like all the negativity that I flushed out of my system came rushing back in all at once. Like, I wanted to kill this dude. You know what I'm saying? I was tight at this dude. Like, I wanted to cut his hand off, tie him up, make him sign a contract. Like, I wanted to do some foul stuff to him. You know what I mean? But, um, you know, I couldn't. So I was, like, real upset. And, um, you know, I started smoking. I started drinking. I was just angry. I I became self-destructive, you know what I mean, at that point. I don't know why why I let it get that far and, and how that triggered me to do that, but it just happened. You know what I mean? And from that point on, it was just like downhill as far as how I cleaned myself out. It was just all back to the old P. Smoking weed, drinking alcohol, you know what I mean? Living foul, thinking foul thoughts, just doing. It's crazy how that happened. And it was like back to the old me all over again. Um, a lot of it I was trying to hide from my, from my woman at that time. We had, we had two kids, and I was trying to hide it from her. Cause she didn't know that I was back on all of that, you know, and um, cause we had clean when I, when she when she seen me clean out my life and get my, you know, my my mind, body, and my soul together and stop using drugs and doing the right thing and all the blessings that we were getting, it inspired her to do the same thing with herself, you know what I mean? So she did that, and then when I fell off and started doing all the bullshit again, you know, I I was hiding it from her cause I didn't want to see her do it out like copy off of me and, and try to do the same thing. So I used to hide it from her. You know, I, I had to hide it from my kids. Like, it was real bad, man, because I used to take my kids with me to the studio, you know what I mean, and to everywhere, and they could be with me because there's no smoke. I didn't allow nobody to smoke or none of that. So now I'm telling my kids, oh, you got to chill. Don't come with me tonight, maybe tomorrow, maybe the day after. So I felt real bad doing that, you know what I mean? I didn't want them around all that smoke. I didn't want them around certain things I was doing. I didn't want to influence them to do that too because you know little kids see you doing it they want to do that too they want to be like daddy or mommy you know what I mean that's just how it is so I ain't want that to happen so you know I kept them away from it and uh you know I was just really in a bad situation so when it came up to 2006 2007 up there like when we did the deal with G unit um you know that was like like almost God telling me Yo, look what I'm putting you in a position to do. You know, this dude, 50, he's came and he's offering you the world. Like, he, anything you want, you can have it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's how much love he had for Mom D. You know what I'm saying? And, um, you know, to this day. And um, basically, anything we wanted to do, we could do it. But I'm so unfocused, I'm just, I, I get in that situation, I'm buying bracelets, mad chains, and mad crazy ice. We driving around the cars. I'm buying bulletproof trucks. I'm, I'm running around wilding, trying to, you know, so I can stand next to, you know, Banks. He got the crazy big chain on. I'm like, damn, I want one of those too. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, 
you know, all the girls coming to banks after the show. I'm like, damn, I need some special effects too. You know what I'm saying? So, so um, you know, that's what I, that's that's what my mind was at, and you know, that's not even how I should have been thinking. I should have been thinking business. You know what I mean? And you know, Fifty, he was an inspiration, and he was like almost like um, like like a sign trying to tell me, yo son, get it together, man. Because he used to tell me like, yo son, all you need to do is get your health together, get your body in shape. He said you'll be a crazy superstar, son, if you want to be. So I was like, I used to be like, well, well, you right. And I know you right, but then I never really did it. You know what I mean? I was just always just still on that self-destructive path. So that's how I got locked up with that gun because. I wasn't thinking my priorities wasn't straight. You know what I mean? If my priorities wasn't straight, they, if, even if I needed to carry a weapon, they wouldn't have been able to find the weapon. You know what I'm saying? If I had my priorities straight. Well, Praji, I want to thank you on behalf of Baltimore and on behalf of 92Q and Rabbit Attack, Enoch Pratt Library for coming yeah. to speak to us. Everybody give a round of applause for Prodigy, man. This is hip-hop. Stay on your feet, man. Clap for this dude, man.